Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Brown Girl White Coat. This is your co-host Alana and you have got a solo episode from me today. Um, By the time you guys are listening to this, it might have already passed, but it is posting on Resurrection Sunday. So if you are celebrating, happy Easter to you and your families. Um, If you practice Lent this year, um, if you fasted, if you abstained from anything, send me a message on what you learned, um, and I'd just love to hear from you. So I am super thankful that it is springtime and that the light and daylight savings have just been flooding my apartment. It has been gorgeous to get off of a shift and it still be sunny outside until like 6 or 7 p.m., which has been really refreshing. Although for the last week, the weather has been super weird. There were thunderstorms with hail that were literally the worst thunderstorms that I think I've ever experienced. Um, Didn't lose power, thankfully. But then it was beautiful. It was like 70, 75 degrees. Felt amazing. And now it's back in the 40s and it's freezing again. And I don't really understand. I mean, I know global warming is definitely, you know, hitting the planet. But it's just very interesting to see kind of the effects. Um, my mom said that this isn't anything new, that it's just a full spring and this always happens and she's probably right. But I was looking forward to, you know, consistent warm weather. So hopefully we can get back to that sometime soon. Anyway, um, this episode is all about my, I guess, first two weeks in my psychiatry rotation and has been quite the wild ride and I can't wait to talk to you guys about it. Um, I'll also be giving you guys some tips about what will be helpful to you in doing well during this clerkship and, you know, getting the most out of your experience, as well as prepping for boards. Um, We have shelf exams at the end of every rotation, so I'll let you guys know how I've been prepping for that, Um, as well as I had a little Q&A on my Instagram on things that people were interested in or wanted to learn more about in psychiatry. So I'm going to answer a couple of the interesting questions um, toward the end of the podcast, so stay tuned if you want to hear those. So I am super excited to chat with you guys today. Thanks for joining us. Again, if you love, I guess for joining me today since it's just me, um, if you love this podcast, please leave a review, send me a DM, send Sai, Avi, or Aaliyah a DM. We love hearing from you guys. And um, maybe leave a rating, leave a comment under this episode, and um, I hope you guys enjoy. All right, so where should I begin? So I guess we'll start from the very top. The order of my clerkships are psychiatry, family medicine, OB, pediatrics, and then I'll have either internal medicine or surgery. Um, I'm not sure which order those two are going to be in, but I'm really happy because the order that it's listed in, I've heard from many people that it is from easiest to hardest, and I'm personally okay with that. A lot of people... Um, like to save psychiatry and family medicine as their quote-unquote break rotations. Um, I don't like to think of it that way. I feel like that, I mean, of course, some fields are more demanding than others, but I don't, you know, want to feel like I'm trash-talking anybody's specialty. So I'm starting with psychiatry, and it has definitely been an interesting experience thus far. Um, I took the AMC career options in medicine, 
And basically that takes your personality type and makes you answer a bunch of questions and it tells you, you know, what specialties would, you know, you thrive in and what would you do well in. And one of them for me was psychiatry. And it was interesting because this wasn't a specialty that I had strongly considered at all. Um, and now it's my first rotation and I'm kind of loving it. So, all right, so let's get started. So the site that I was assigned to is a psychiatric hospital, and we see three types of patients. The first are 6404 patients, which are involuntary admissions, and we can hold them up to 72 hours. Um, if after 72 hours the clinicians don't think that the patient is you know, ready to either go back into society or is a harm to themselves or a harm to others, they can file a court order where they can be held for 30 days. I also wanted to mention, if you guys think that I'm not, you know, going too in-depth with cases, of course I want to, but I'm absolutely not, you know, going to break HIPAA or break any patient confidentiality. Um, that's something that's really important to me. So, of course, I want to go into depth, and I will as much as I can on some of the cases at the end, but... Um, for now, we're going to try and keep things by the book to the rules. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. So that's kind of how it's going to be. Okay. So the second type of patient are 301A patients and the third are 301B. And what that means are these are patients from jail and they are under psychiatric forensic evaluation. These patients have been charged with a crime or with multiple crimes and have been deemed by a judge or deemed by the court that they need evaluation for their mental health. So our unit can hold them for up to 30 days where there's a team of people called a treatment team, um, and it consists of a nurse, um, social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, and forgive me if I'm missing anything else, um, and obviously the residents. So they all get together and then come up with a plan to work with the patients to evaluate, you know, their mental health and their mental status at the time of the crime. So many patients, um, I don't want to say patients, many people that have, you know, committed crazy crimes might try to plea insanity. So sometimes we might see some patients that are malingering and malingering just means, you know, trying to take advantage of the system for your benefit. And the benefit in this case would be either a reduced jail sentence or, you know, being able to go to a psychiatric hospital as opposed to go and get jail time, things like that. So these are patients who have been charged. And during the 30 days, we will be evaluating their mental capacity and their competence to stand trial. Now, the 301B patients are patients who have already, you know, done 30 days of 301A, but the clinicians still don't think that they have the capacity to stand trial um, and to, you know, either go back to jail or exist how they were before coming to the hospital. So now we have six months to help these patients get adjusted, um, get on a good um, pharmacologic regimen, and just get the treatment and the help that they need, as well as the knowledge to survive trial. So that is, those are the patients that we're kind of working with. And on my very first day, I didn't know what to expect in this psychiatric hospital. And then learning that all of these patients, uh, or majority of these patients have, you know, psychiatric illness, as well as committed all these crazy crimes made me extremely nervous. Um, psychiatric hospitals and, you know, facilities and institutions are inherently unpredictable, right? So I'm scaredy cat. I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of the shadows. I'm scared of the squirrels in the trees. I'm turning behind my shoulder all the time, right? 
And hearing that just kind of freaked me out. So the first like three or four days that I'm in this psychiatric hospital, I'm kind of terrified. So I guess we can go into what my day kind of looks like. So I wake up at 6 a.m. I don't have to report to my site until 8 a.m. or 8.30. And that is, you know, when the treatment teams are. Depending on which days of the week, we can go in earlier or later to view the teams or not. And so I get up at 6. Um, obviously, I get ready. I try to move my body a little bit. Might do a little yoga to wake up. Um, but when I do that, I have to eat my breakfast in the car while I'm driving. So I drive to my site and we have these special keys. So we get a set of keys that open all of the doors. So all of the doors are locked by magnetic, like really strong <laughs> magnets on the top of the doors. So you put the key into the wall and you turn it and it like deactivates the magnet and you can push open the door and walk through. So in my unit, there's a big sign outside of the door that says elopement risk, which means these patients um, if they're kind of standing by the door, if they catch you off guard, they will push it open and they will run. So one, it's my first time in a psychiatric hospital. I have to open the doors with keys and like make sure no one's behind me. But I also have to make sure nobody's in the door that I'm about to walk into. And it just really freaked me out. I was very, very nervous. So that was one thing. And then um, just kind of getting acclimated. So we have something that's called the horseshoe in our unit. And it is really an area, it's kind of an enclosed area that you can get to with a locked door that opens up to the big hallway where all of the patients' rooms are. So that is where it's safe for us medical students to go without a resident. If there's a resident with us or if we're with the attending or maybe a lab tech, we can venture out into the patient hallways. Um, and this is just a safety precaution because we're kind of two smaller people and um, the medical student that I'm paired with, we're smaller people. And, you know, all of these patients have major uncommon psychiatric illnesses and it can be very unpredictable. You don't know if someone is having a psychotic episode or might be reacting to one of their delusions and possibly attack us. But thankfully, nothing like that has happened so far. I do have an interesting story to share at the end, but um, all of the people, all of the patients, many of the patients are either these really tall you know, buff guys who are pretty strong and a lot bigger than me or, you know, smaller patients that might be my size um, but are just, you know, mentally not present and it can be a little frightening. So, um, okay, that was kind of my first day. So I, <laughs> my first day walking into the horseshoe, I was with the resident and one of the patients is staring at me. I've got my mask on. Um, he's staring at me like I'm crazy and he's like I don't know who this girl is I don't trust her she's a new doctor you know the last time I was here I was poisoned and I really just don't want to be around anyone new so the resident asked me to you know go back into kind of it's not the break room but it's like where all the offices are um, patients obviously can't get there without a key and it's kind of like where we stay during the day if we're not rounding for patients so I go back into that area and I'm looking through the window <laughs> and the guy is just kind of getting kind of agitated. Like I can tell he's getting uncomfortable. So I'm really scared. It's my first day. I don't want to piss anybody off. This guy already thinks that I poisoned him. I don't want any of the patients to think that I'm out to get them or an enemy. And he was just trying to explain that I'm just a medical student. I'm here to learn. And the patient was not having it at all. So 
I kind of hid in the back room for the rest of the day and that was fine with me. So then the next day, um, I walk in and the resident is like, okay, come on, you're going to do a patient history today. And I was like, what? I'm going to do a what? And in my first two years, the preclinical years, we had what were called OSCEs and we would have to go and learn, you know, how to give a patient history and how to give a patient physical. But doing it in real life, like on the second day of me also being terrified is, uh, wow, very interesting. So we do what's called, it's just a very simplified version of a mental status exam. And the reason it's simplified is because these patients get asked these questions every day. Um, they're thoroughly screened before they come in. So by the time I get to see them, there's not really much physical to be done and not much history to be taken. All of that can be found in their patient files, which I've been reading like crazy because everybody's got a very interesting background. I strongly recommend when you get on your psychiatry unit, if you can read up on the patient cases because they are very interesting and it really helps you to deep to, I guess, more deeply connect with the patient when you're interacting with them, at least from your side, right? Um, oh my gosh, where was I going with that? Oh yeah, okay, the, the mental status exam. So when we give the abbreviated exam, it is really, how's your appetite doing? How are you sleeping? Are you having any um, auditory hallucinations? And the way you phrase that is, are you hearing things that other people can't hear or visual? Are you seeing things that other people can't see? Um, do you have any thoughts of committing suicide, of hurting other people? Um, how do you feel, um, eating here? Do you feel safe here? How are you getting along with people? Things like that. So we also, um, scale their anxiety and depression for that day. And that is essentially the extent of what I'm kind of able to do. So the residents, you know, help us do that. They walk us through our exams and then we just kind of shadow them around like puppies and watch them interact with patients. So I have seen, I think, almost every case under the sun. The only thing that I haven't seen is dissociative identity disorder, but I've seen things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, antisocial disorder. I've seen a man with Parkinson's and, schizoph and schizoaffective disorder, which has been interesting. I have met angels. I've met billionaires. It is such an interesting place to be in a psychiatric hospital. So, so it's time for me to give my first mini- kind of mental exam and I go and I'm talking to the patient with the resident behind me I introduce myself and this patient um, has gender dysphoria and is looking to transition into the gender that they feel fits them the most and fits them the best and what they are so uh, I accidentally messed up their pronouns um, and luckily they were very forgiving very nice about it and they told me that they were a billionaire um, and that they were a philanthropist and that they wanted to donate, you know, $25 million to the psychiatric institution and, you know, really help the nutrition and fix the beds and fix the light and the quality of life for the patients there. But this patient really had um, drug-induced psychosis from methamphetamine use. So not a billionaire, um, claimed that they built a mansion in another state in a week um, and was clearly having... I had strong delusions, um, and it was just very interesting to have, and what to have what felt like an extremely serious conversation with a patient who is, you know, just talking about their delusions. And 
and to them it's you know it's not delusions at all it's their life it's what they are mentally experiencing and that's what's crazy to me so um, the rest of the interview went without a hitch he was very cooperative you know they were extremely nice and I didn't feel nervous giving the interview and that was great but then we're walking down the hallway and I see the patient that thinks that I'm going to poison him and he looks at my white coat and you know he sees the name of my school and he's like everybody there is just horrible I know everybody in Nashville and I've never seen you before so you better watch your back because I'm watching you and I'm terrified again so I don't feel safe, you know, walking around the unit because I'm scared that this patient is going to act on one of his delusions, is going to try to hurt me. Oh, that's what I meant to bring up earlier. So the last day on on Thursday, one of the patients was speaking with their social worker and I guess the patient got riled up and ended up, you know, holding the social worker up against the wall by her neck. And that's scary to me because, you know, that employee works here and she's worked with, I'm sure, a ton of psychiatric patients. And that's got to be traumatizing every time. I mean, I don't know if that's something that I could handle. And it is very, very, very interesting to say the least. Um, I have seen patients who have tried to commit suicide. I've seen depressed patients, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder. I have seen manic episodes. I've seen um, patients with tremors, with delirium. I think I have literally seen it all. I've seen patients having conversations with themselves in the hallways. I've seen um, sometimes very interesting things like patients licking papers and sticking them on the walls or sticking papers into their ears. Um, but I will say that when you see the patients as a person with a mental illness, it is not scary anymore. Um, of course, the unpredictability can be fearful, but there are people to help you and people to keep you safe. Um, my, you know how some hospitals have like a code blue, code blue if something's going wrong? Well, my unit has a special code and um, there's a team of people that will come and if needed, they will tackle the person. They will use, you know, haloperidol, which is... Um, just a fast-acting antipsychotic to really bring down acute episodes of, you know, schizophrenia or just delusions um, and really help the patient reach baseline and reach calm again. So a big issue is non-compliance with medications. I have one patient who brags about cheeking her medications and she's bragging to the wrong person because obviously I have to tell on her. <laughs> so um, it's been very interesting to see the change of patients when they are on medication and when they're medicated and when their um, disorders are kind of under control as opposed to when they are having a manic episode or when they're, you know, being open and feeling quote unquote at their best. So I think I've done enough kind of rambling about that. But to finish off my day, um, it's pretty nice. I get to go home relatively early. Most days I get to go home around noon. Um, we do our patient rounding at 8 a.m. Um, from around 8 to 8.30. And then we have our treatment team. And then we go out on the floor, see new admissions. Um, for the new admissions, we do have longer screenings, which is interesting. We sit in a different room and... Um, it's just kind of the initial evaluation and we haven't, or the medical students, we haven't gotten to do that yet. Um, we've mostly watched residents do it and it's mostly because it's a time thing. Um, they really have kind of a lot to do. So sometimes 
if they can't teach us immediately, we just have to watch and learn, which is fine. Um, all of the residents are going to be different. I have one resident that wants to run through cases with me all day and help me practice and really make sure that I can recognize symptoms and recognize disorders properly. And then there's one resident that's like, listen, you can study your textbook. Um, ask me any questions if you have them and that's it. So it's really nice to be able to kind of get the experience that I want and kind of dibble and dabble from different resident techniques of teaching, which has been really nice. So, oh my gosh, I keep like flipping back and forth and I'm sorry if you guys hate me right now, but I get off around noon most days. Um, some days I'll be going home at 3 p.m. It just depends on how busy the day is, how many patients we have to see. And then I come home and I study for the rest of the day. So uh, not too different from some specialties. I know a lot of my friends have been, you know, getting off at around 5, but some of them have to wake up at like 4 p.m., 4 a.m. So very, very different, but I've been trying to slowly and surely, you know, change my sleep schedule so that I can gradually start waking up at 5 a.m. without a hitch. That would be awesome. So, okay, let's get into some of the Q&A questions that I've gotten. So, uh, the first one is, what role have you been playing in patient interaction? So, I kind of covered this a teeny bit. Um, I'm really there to watch, listen, and learn. Um, I can interact with the patients as much as I feel comfortable with, but I prefer to stay with a resident just because um, I'm still new on the unit. A lot of patients don't recognize me. It's just... I feel safer when I'm not by myself. Um, so I have been able to take histories. I have been able to figure out which drugs need to be prescribed. I can look through patient charts and come up with my own diagnoses and then talk it out with the residents. Uh, I get to see new admissions patients. I get to kind of hang out with the nurses and see what they've been doing, how they're treating patients, things like that. But for the most part, I'm stuck behind the residents shadowing them all day long. Um, and I have been able to interact with a lot of patients. A lot of them know me now. Um, I'm able to, you know, they'll remember me by name and some patients obviously have their days and some don't have their days, but I've been threatened. I have been proposed to, I have been yelled at and it just kind of comes with the territory and you have to be able to shake it off and not take it to heart because half of the time the patients aren't going to really remember what they've said to you or the kind of interaction you've had depending on what disorder they've kind of got going on. So don't be nervous. It's okay to be nervous, you know, when you first get there, but eventually when you get used to it, things will get better and you are always pretty protected and safe. Um, all right. Question two, what does your day to day look like? So I kind of covered that a little bit. Um, remember wake up at 6am, try to find a good routine. I really need to get better at meal prepping. That's something that I'm really going to try and pick up this week because even though I'm not super busy, I'm tired of eating breakfast in the car and driving. So I'm going to try and make my life a little easier so that I can um, just flow a little smoother, right? Okay, number three, are mental health issues more common than people realize? I 110% believe so. And mental um, health issues can stem from, you know, schizophrenia, which is more of a biological um, and neurological issue with dopamine as opposed to like substance use disorder where you might be addicted to some kind of substance. So it's a wide spectrum. And 
between, you know, schizophrenia and drug use, there is a lot of things that people can kind of hide in the closet and, you know, suffer in silence on their own about. So I would definitely say yes. Um, An interesting fact is that there are more people with psychiatric illness housed in jails um, for breaking the law, you know, being out of their right state of mind than in psychiatric institutions. And I think that that is very crazy and it's very telling. Um, It also kind of speaks to the prison system making money off of people who are imprisoned because if all of these people have mental illness committing, you know, these crimes and they need help, they don't need to be punished, Um, at least in my opinion. Number four, Did you see patients with the same mental illness but different symptoms, and what did it help you realize about the ways one illness can affect many people? Ooh, that's a good question. So yes, I have seen a ton of schizophrenic patients in the last two weeks. It presents different in almost every patient, and I will also say that almost every medical medical, almost every mental illness that I've encountered presents differently in different patients. And they could have the exact same thing going on, but it manifests through their lives differently. And a lot of that is attributed to social support, um, substance abuse, your environment, you know, those who are there to support you, whether you're taking your medications, things like that. So I have one patient who, remember I mentioned the angel earlier, he Um, during one of the interviews was experiencing auditory um, hallucinations and he mentioned that the devil was trying to tell him to do to do bad things and to hurt people and he's able to just ignore it and help you know people become the best that they want to be and really unlock their true potential he was very calm he just told us you know hey I'm hearing things but I'm ignoring it I just want to let you guys know Um, If I get a little riled up, this might happen. So he is well aware of his mental illness and he kind of has more of a grasp and a control on it. And I'm not sure how long he's been diagnosed or how long he's been dealing with it, but very calm, cool, and collected. On the other hand, another one of my patients also has schizophrenia, but they um, are were experiencing a lot more delusions. So my resident had her phone on her hip and he was looking at it and he said, oh, is that your husband? Oh no, is that your dog? Why are you walking your dog? We're in, we're inside. What are you doing with your dog on a leash? And he was talking about her phone and it was very interesting because we couldn't interrupt him. Um, he was very talkative. You weren't able to interrupt him. He was a little slightly agitated and it was just too almost polar opposite patients. And also in the same person, the symptoms can differ throughout the day. So in the morning, you know, they can be agitated, they can be furious. There was a man who was banging his head on the wall because the voices in his head wouldn't stop. And then after lunchtime, he was relaxed and Um, he said that he was in his room, he was drawing, he was painting, um, and he was working with the voices in his head to get to a new goal. And I just think that that is so interesting that the same patient can present and be a completely different person, um, at different times throughout the day. So yes, for the short answer. Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay, this question is, what is cool that you've learned about psychiatry? 
I think the coolest thing for me about psychiatry is that there aren't necessarily tangible outcomes, but the intangible outcomes are extremely meaningful. And by that, I mean, you know, as a surgeon, you can go and do a heart transplant and then the patient's new heart can work and they can live their life and be done with it. But in mental illness, um, you're dealing with something that is all restricted to the mind and restricted to the brain. And it's not necessarily something that you can go in and fix. And of course, there is, you know, electroconvulsive ther- um, therapy for major depression. And um, I'm, I think you can also use that on schizophrenic patients. But, you know, helping a patient change their life around and be able to have a relationship with their family and to not want to end their life you know, at all times of the day, or to feel like their manic episodes are under control and they can sleep instead of being awake for four to five days at a time. And it is really rewarding to kind of see the transformation of someone's life. Now, although it might be a little more rocky and bumpy because it also requires a desire to get better. So you also do have to stay compliant on your medications. You do have to stick with therapy. Um, There can be reluctance to going back to trying to find the baseline. Okay, the next question is, what do you always keep in your white coat? I always keep two pens in my white coat. I keep my small Maxwell pocket handbook, which I haven't used for psychiatry yet. Um, I'm sure it'll come in handy for some of the mental exams that I have to perform. But again, I haven't been able to do any extensive history taking, so I might not need it. I also keep my keys that allow me to get into every door, into the bathrooms, and a notebook, a small notebook to take notes during the patient interactions so that I can log them for later. Other than that, I don't need a stethoscope. I'm not performing any physical exams. Um, they have the nurses do that just for stability for the patients. Um, since I'm only on this rotation for four weeks, I'm really just doing a lot of shadowing and monitoring and watching. Another thing are hair ties. I really like to keep my hair or my, right now my hair is in braids. I really like to keep it pulled back just because we're not supposed to have anything dangling. You're not supposed to wear earrings or necklaces or any type of jewelry because, or even a tie because a patient, if they are, you know, experiencing something that disorients them or makes them confused or agitated, they may try to act violently. Um, There's a history of physicians and nurses and people getting strangled with their stethoscopes or with their ties with agitated patients so that is something to definitely be careful for and this isn't really something that I can keep in my coat but spider-like reflexes you have to be quick to make sure that patients aren't trying to follow you into doors and you have to close them behind you and you have to make sure that patients aren't sneaking up behind you because I had one patient that kind of scared the crap out of me he might be six foot like six or six foot seven 300 350 pounds like a really big guy and he came and asked my resident have we seen a doctor that doesn't work at the hospital so obviously the resident says no like you might be thinking about the wrong hospital I haven't seen him and then the patient gets really agitated and is stomping and following us around the hospital and tries to um kind of get riled up with the resident and she eloquently de-escalated the escalation or de-escalated the situation and I was very uncomfortable but it's just something that I guess you kind of have to learn and you have to stay on your toes and make sure nobody's trying to pick your pockets or do anything wild but thankfully I haven't had to deal with any of that 
Okay, so those are, I feel like I've been rambling for a while and I've covered some of the more interesting questions that I've got. So let's start with a case and let's do a schizophrenia. So when you get to a practice question, um, actually I'll read an example from Amboss. So the question says a 26 year old man is brought to the emergency department by the police after threatening to harm his roommate earlier today. He reports that someone on the radio told him to do so. His family reports that during the past two years, the patient has become increasingly more withdrawn from family and friends. He has spent the majority of the last year alone in his room working on a project to save the earth from an evil alien power. There is no family history of serious illness, but he has smoked marijuana on a daily basis since he was 13. Vitals are normal. On mental status exam, he has a flat effect and his speech is disorganized. An MRI is likely to show which of the following. So I kind of already spoiler alerted you guys at that this is a schizophrenic patient. And there are some interesting things that we can point out here. So one, someone on the radio told him is he said that someone on the radio told him to harm his roommate. One that is definitely probably an auditory hallucination or a delusion could have been um, maybe an idea of reference where the patient thinks that someone is referring to them or um, the message was specifically meant for them. Another thing is being withdrawn from family and friends. Those are some of the negative symptoms of, you know, not wanting to engage in social activity. Um, his flat effect, which means that he is kind of not making any facial expressions, not really showing any excitement or any agitation, just completely flat. And disorganized speech is another criteria um, for a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So disorganized speech is kind of when the patient is... Uh, It's kind of when the patient has um, what are called loose associations. So they change the topic very frequently. Um, it's also known as word salad. So none of the words have any sequential or logical connections. Um, and you might also see what's called a flight of ideas. And that is um, rapid thoughts back to back to back. Um, it's typically due to schizophrenia, but you can also see flight of ideas in um, manic episodes for bipolar disorder, but I'll get there. So um, another thing is the duration. So to have schizophrenia, you have to have these symptoms interfering with your life for at least six months. And this patient has been having these issues for the last two years. So he fits that criteria. He presents with hallucinations, which are the auditory hallucinations from, you know, hearing the commands from the radio. He's got the delusions. Um, he has that disorganized speech and he's got the negative symptoms, um, the social withdrawal and also the flat affect. So again, we've got the time frame. So that is consistent with schizophrenia. Now on an MRI, um, what we would see are enlarged ventricles. So um, the lateral ventricles are typically enlarged in patients with schizophrenia because there's also a decreased um, cortical volume. So the cortex has been diminished. And they're typically, um, it's not really known why the ventricles enlarge, but they think that it's because the cortical volume and, you know, shrinking the brain structures really leaves space for the ventricles to kind of more um, CSF can flow in and take up a lot more space. 
Another thing is he has a history of smoking marijuana on a daily basis, and frequent use of cannabis is actually a really strong risk factor for psychosis. And if you don't know what psychosis is, it's really just a wacky perception of reality where you see hallucinations or you have delusions and your behavior is kind of erratic and disorganized. So that is schizophrenia. Um, And not all patients present like this. Some of them might, you know, be acting on delusion. Um, Some of them might be talking to themselves. They might um, have what's called thought blocking. And that's when patients are responding to, you know, internal stimuli. So say, One day we were talking to a patient and we were asking about his drug use and his drug habits and it looked like he wanted to tell us what was going on, but then he seemed to kind of look to the side and then it almost looked as if something was telling him not to talk to us and he didn't finish his sentence. So that is a good example of thought blocking. So those are things common in schizophrenia. Um, The second most common thing that people asked about was bipolar disorder. So let's talk about that. A lot of people think that a patient with bipolar disorder just has crazy mood swings, and that is just not the case. So, all right, so I will read this second question also from Amboss. Also, this isn't sponsored or anything. This is just my personal favorite QBank. I am an ambassador for them, but it is really just to tell people how awesome Amboss is, and I don't get paid from it or anything, so... Okay, this is the second question. So a 25-year-old man is brought to the emergency department by his wife for evaluation of abnormal behavior that began two weeks ago. The patient hasn't slept in over a week and has been partying every night. He has never done this before. The patient has also been skipping work and purchased a car last week with money that they saved for their vacation to Italy. He has a past medical history of major depressive disorder He normally drinks two beers per week, but has been drinking six to ten beers a day for the last two weeks. Current medications include hydroxychloroquine. He appears agitated and is wearing bright-colored, mismatched clothing. His temperature is 96.8 degrees, pulse is 94, respirations are 18, and blood pressure is 130 over 85. On mental status exam, his speech is pressured and his thought process is tangential. A complete blood count, blah, blah, blah. Everything else is negative. (laughs) So bipolar disorder is characterized by periods of uh, elevated mood known as manic episodes. And the patients will have tons of motivation, completely active, might go for days without sleeping, might be working on a big project that might necessarily be attainable for a single person, or they might have goals that aren't usually, you know, attainable, for lack of a better term. Um, And then these periods of mania are coupled with periods of depression, and they can alternate. So um, in terms of depression, They might have a lack of motivation, a loss of interest, which is called anhedonia. So the patients don't do things they enjoy. Their appetite might change. Their sleep might change. They might become very reserved and isolated and things like that. So so remember that I mentioned the high periods of activity. Um, That is called mania. And so there's two types of bipolar disorder. There is type 1 and type 2. Type 2 is a full manic episode, and that just means that um, the intensity of the symptoms are a lot higher, so there is significant dysfunction, and these patients typically require hospitalization. 
Um, but if they're hypomanic, there is uh, psychotic symptoms are present, but might not be as severe. And also the time frame is a little bit shorter than a manic episode. So there's no marked impairment of functioning and there's no hospitalization in bipolar 2. So an easy way to kind of remember the features of a manic episode is DIG FAST, and that's an acronym. And that stands for distractibility, irresponsibility, grandiosity, flight of ideas, activity, sleep deficits, and talkativeness. And if these patients have, you know, they fit all that criteria, then they are likely having a manic episode. Also, the manic episode has to be present for at least um, a week for most of the day, and same for hypomanic episodes, but for a little bit shorter time. And then for the major depressive episodes, that has to be present for at least two weeks. And um, you can screen for depression using what's called SIG-E caps. And I'll just run through that really quick. That's sleep, um, loss of interests, guilt, energy, concentration, your appetite, um, what else? Uh, psychomotor agitation or retardation. So slowed movements or quick and crazy movements. And finally, suicidality. So again, if you fit more than five of these criteria, then you can be characterized as having depression. So I'm trying to run through this quick so this episode isn't too much longer. So the last um, mental illness or disorder that was most requested was antisocial personality disorder, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I think that that stems from people saying, oh, I'm just super antisocial, like I don't want to hang out with people. But antisocial personality disorder is actually a little bit extreme. So um, if to be diagnosed with this, you have to be at least 18. And if you are younger than 18, you were probably diagnosed with what's called conduct disorder. Um, and you have to actually have that by the time you turn 15. And that's just a behavioral disorder in children where they're very disruptive for longer than a year and they essentially violate the rights of other people and are just kind of little terrors. So besides that, to have antisocial personality disorder, you have to be deceitful and manipulative. You have to have a history of repeated aggression and hostility. Um, these patients are often engaged in criminal activity. They're pretty impulsive in, you know, the acts that they do and the things that they commit. Um, they don't really care about anybody's safety or their own safety. They don't feel sadness or they feel emotionally indifferent to other people's stories, to other people's misery. So it is very difficult to treat and Antisocial personality disorder is what we know as a sociopath. So, for example, Ted Bundy, I'm like pretty sure he was also a sociopath. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and it is very tough because these patients can be pretty aggressive and not really care about what they're doing or who they're hurting in the process. So before you go walking around saying, oh, I'm so antisocial, um, maybe take it with a little grain of salt because there are some people who are acting crazy with this and maybe you're just more introverted. That might be a better term to use. So I did get a ton of messages about different disorders. So if I didn't cover it here, then I will definitely send you a DM and break some things down for you, which I think is um, just the cool things of all of these disorders. So finally, I kind of segued into that AMBOSS thing to mention how I'm studying for my shelf exams. So Every day I read our textbook, which was just assigned by our clerkship coordinator, 
and I highlight, I read the disorders every day. Um, I try to, you know, knock a chunk out here and there, a good block. I am using sketchy to reinforce the drugs. There is a lot of pharmacological, pharmacological knowledge that you need for psychiatry. So I would definitely invest in sketchy. It's very expensive, but there's a lot of uh, interaction that really helps you remember them. And I suck at farm, so 10 out of 10 would recommend them. And then every day I just do 28 practice questions. So I just make sure that I'm trying to stay on top of everything. And towards the end of my rotation, which will be in about a week and a half, two weeks, I will probably buy the NBME um, like practice psychiatry exam just to gauge where I'm at, see what I need to study and cram for in my last week. Yeah, so I know that this episode ran really rambly, but I did hope that you enjoy. Um, I hope that you found any of these tips that I gave you guys helpful and just go in with an open mind. Even if you aren't interested in psychiatry, it is definitely an interesting and rewarding field if you let it be. So thanks for, you know, listening with me. I hope you guys enjoyed. Again, if you love listening to our podcast, if you want to support us, then please, you know, like, leave a comment, leave a review, leave a rating, leave us all the love that you can. We appreciate our listeners extremely, extremely more than you guys know. So thank you for listening. I hope you guys have an awesome April. I mean, we are really moving closer to summer and I know everybody's trying to say hot girl summer, but I will be hot girl hospitaling. So best of luck to all of you guys and I will see you next month. Thanks again. Bye.